Welcome to Shield of the Republic, a podcast sponsored by The Bulwark and the Miller Center of Public Affairs at the University of Virginia and dedicated to the proposition articulated first by Walter Lippmann during World War II that a strong and balanced foreign policy is the indispensable shield of our democratic republic. I'm Eric Edelman, counselor at the Center for Strategic and Budgetary Assessments, a Bulwark contributor, and a non-resident fellow at the Miller Center. My co-host, Elliot Cohen, the Robert E. Osgood Professor of Strategy at Johns Hopkins University School of Advanced International Studies and Arlie Burke Chair in Strategy at the Center for Strategic and International Studies is here to join me after returning from uh, a trip to the front to both Poland and to Ukraine. Elliot, welcome back. Well, thank you. It's good to be back. I'm not quite sure I'd say the front, uh, although we were we were we did get to see a good bit in Poland and Ukraine, and I'm happy to report back to you. All right. Well, I want to get to that uh, in a minute, both uh, what you saw and found on your trip, uh, as well as exploring with you your terrific piece in the Atlantic about uh, a cornered Putin. I'll I'll hold in abeyance a discussion about uh, nuclear weapons since Frank Miller and I testified together in front of the Senate Armed Services Committee yesterday about uh, the future of nuclear uh, strategy and policy. Maybe we'll get Frank another co-conspirator to come on and join us. We can talk nuclear weapons. Yeah. And, and in light of Putin's speech, you know, this morning, which we can talk about, uh, it, it would be particularly relevant. But before we go there, I want to just briefly talk about some good news, because mostly we talk about bad news on this on this podcast. But I want to lighten it up a little bit first. Tell me what you think about uh, the fact that one of the first things out of the box that Prime Minister Liz Truss has done in the United Kingdom is announce a new review of British uh, strategy and defense policy coordinated by our friend John Bew. So I guess the the good news there is first that the Brits are taking this all very seriously. But the other thing is that John Bew is leading it. So for our listeners, John Bew is a disgustingly young, brilliant historian. uh, And even more disgustingly, he's actually a wonderful human being. And we, we should actually try to lure him onto the podcast. He's really a super nice guy. He, there are two, he's written several books which are uh, fascinating. A biography of Castlereagh, the great early 19th century British uh, statement, a, a statesman, a biography of Clement Attlee, Churchill's successor after World War II, and uh, a book on rail politique. And he's a deeply, deeply thoughtful guy. And I think there's, there's something very reassuring about having a, about a country in which a first-rate historian can be involved in the shaping of strategy. And I think that, that augurs well. Uh, I'll also say that you know, to maybe link the, the next, with the next part of the podcast, one of the, you know, the standout performances in this conflict has been by Great Britain. And the British have really been, in some ways, even ahead of us, uh, but aggressively supporting Ukraine. There's not going to be any difference between Liz Truss and Boris Johnson. But, you know, I I do want to say that even though a lot of people have reservations or have had reservations about Boris Johnson, I do think he somehow channeled some little inner piece of Churchill and uh, immediately, you know, he's been there several times. He's been eloquent. 
in his support of uh, Ukraine. And I think he's been eloquent in making the basic arguments for what British policy ought to be. I don't know about you, uh, Eric, but as he was leaving Parliament, I was struck that he you know, he kind of gave his uh, – it's not a last will and testament because I think this guy has nine lives. But he, his part of his advice was stay close to the Americans. So it's a piece of traditional British uh, British statecraft. So all in all, it's very good news. I mean, the sad news, of course, is the passing of the Queen. But uh, um, she had a very good run after 70 years. And it's it was actually, again, sort of impressive watching the British go through all the ceremonial of um, celebrating a quite extraordinary woman and then inaugurating a new reign. Don't you think? I mean, I'm I'm more of a sentimental royalist than you are. Yeah, I'm a, I'm I'm a lot less sentimental about the royal family, and I you know we'll see how King Charles does. I do think he's off to a good start. I, I've been impressed, and Liz Truss has been off to a good start. I had reservations about Liz Truss uh, as Prime Minister of uh, the United Kingdom. I do think, first of all, keeping Ben Wallace on the the uh, Secretary of State for Defense, who I think has been quite good was very good in the in the Boris Johnson administration. And actually, frankly, after a succession of really lackluster uh, ministers of defense, I think has been quite good in this uh, circumstance. Uh, so I thought it was good that she kept him on. That was important. But also to see that our friend uh, John is going to be leading this uh, review, which I think is necessary. And the last review was only 18 months ago. But I think, as you say, the Brits understand circumstances have changed. And when circumstances have changed, strategy has to adjust. And so I think uh, I think it's a, a very good sign all the way around. I do have to say one thing. I, I'm never quite sure why it was John wanted to do a biography of Clem Attlee, who, of whom Churchill once said, a modest little man who has much to be modest about. Oh, uh, it's not clear, I think, that he actually said that. You know, he actually had a lot of regard for him during World War II. When he was prime minister, right? Right, right. So, yeah, but, you know, I mean, all of us write different kinds of books on different subjects. I don't think we should be uh, – I don't think we should be hypercritical. Um, Um, But it is good. You know, an interesting contrast, Eric, may be with our own national defense strategy, which should finally drop fairly soon – uh, and perhaps we should have a session which you and I, you know, dissect it in exquisite detail. Maybe a little bit more like vivisection than dissection. But yeah, we'll get to that. Of course, I've been appointed uh, to the new uh, commission to review the NDS. We'll see whether that gets started. We're still waiting on one appointment on the Democratic side, and and we'll see where that goes. The other piece of good news before we really dive into Ukraine has been the announcement by the Biden administration that the president has nominated, or is at least the intent to nominate, uh, Lynn Tracy to be the United States ambassador to Russia. I, I think that's a terrific appointment, and I I suspect you do too, but I'll, I'll let you speak for yourself. Absolutely. And I'll, I'll just um, say, when I was counselor, I frequently, a counselor of the Department of State, I frequently went to Pakistan, and I frequently went to Peshawar to take a look at the Northwest Frontier Province. And our Consul General there was Lynn Tracy, who was unflappable, um, had extraordinary connections there, and was courageous. You know, one day she uh, was pulling out of her home in Peshawar in her armored uh, car, and it was riddled with, I think, like 30 bullets uh, in an assassination attempt. And therefore, she thereafter, she just kind of continued her job but slept in the office. And imperturbable, 
uh, highly professional. Um, really, she's a wonderful pick, I think, for that position. I couldn't agree more. Yeah, very tough-minded, I think she'll. And she's been deputy chief of mission in Moscow. She served there before, so she'll be terrific. Well, so much for the good news <laughs> portion of this podcast. Um, I'd like you to just first tell us, you know, give us a sense of your impressions, both in, in, in Kiev and, and in, in Warsaw. What, what did you find? And then I want to, you know, drill into some of the things you wrote about in the Atlantic. Yeah, and uh, you know, I want to get your views, too, on what's happening in Russia, since you were stationed there as a, a diplomat as well. So the trip was organized by PISM, P-I-S-M, which is the Polish Foreign Affairs Think Tank. It's government-funded, so it's a bit different model than ours, which is extraordinarily well-connected. There was a small group of us, uh, included people like Corey Shockey from the American Enterprise Institute, Michael O'Hanlon from Brookings, um, James Schur, who's a very expert student of Russia, Francois Heisborg, one of the leading French figures in the national security field. So a small group. We got a wonderful visit with the, um, with the Polish military and a visit to some of the bases on the Polish side of the border where a lot of the arms supplies to uh, Ukraine are going. I'll say a bit more about that in a moment. We also were accompanied by the Polish National Security Advisor and the Vice Foreign Minister, so it was a pretty high-level delegation, small. We went in by train at night. Uh, it had kind of a World War II feeling to it. And uh, then we were in Kiev. And in Kiev, we, we visited Irpin. So we saw some of the, uh, the battlefield there and some of the destruction and uh, Ukrainians rebuilding and restarting their lives. Uh, we got a very good briefing from a very senior officer on the general staff. And uh, we had a meeting with President Zelensky and also with the Ukrainian vice foreign minister. So impressions. Uh, let me start with Poland, because in some ways that's, you know, when people say, well, what did you learn that was new? I can't say that there's a whole lot that, was, that I learned that was new. But one thing that was very striking was actually on the Polish side of the border. And that is um, I'd expected the base that we visited to be humming with activity. And it wasn't. And in fact, what we learned is that it's basically operating at about 60% of capacity. So it did not have the vibe uh, that uh, you and I both rec remember from going to Kandahar or uh, you know, some of our bases in the Persian Gulf. It, uh, I mean, it's busy. There's stuff going on, but there could clearly be a lot more. And we also got quite a detailed briefing on the amount of materiel that's going to Ukraine. And my basic conclusion, which was reinforced by Kiev, is not nearly enough. You know, they need a lot of ammunition. They need surface-to-air missile systems. Um, they need more long-range systems. They, they need more secure communications. And the Ukrainians were very clear with us about that. So I think the, the idea that they're getting everything they need is simply not true. Kiev itself, what struck me about is it felt very normal. Uh, <clears throat> a lot of traffic. Um, fair number of people on the streets, restaurants open. Interestingly, you don't see a lot of heroic posters up there with, you know, figures of uh, Ukrainian soldiers and so on. And I'm told that that's fairly deliberate, that they, you know, they want the part of what the Ukrainian leadership wants to do is to restore a sense of normalcy. The uh, Ukrainian military, very, very impressive. Um, 
And in general, I would say the mood was one of sober confidence and optimism, but not cockiness. Um, they obviously had these great successes around Kharkiv, but they weren't taking things for granted. Uh, they were very clear about what they needed. Um, a couple of the, the standout moments. One is when the general was asked, you know, what has changed most in your military since 2014? Uh, this was a guy who I don't think is much given to big smiles. He said, you know, we've moved away from the old Soviet command system. So we we now, it's basically what, what the West would be called mission-oriented command now, where you tell your subordinates what to do, not how to do it. And he broke out into a big grin, and that clearly made him feel that we were going, that they were going somewhere um, I think they have. They feel they have the Russians on the back foot. The as as you know, the on the uh, in the south on the western bank of the Dnipro, uh, you have the city of Kherson, which was really the major city that the Russians took early on. The bridges have all been smashed. Um, the the river crossings are under intense Ukrainian artillery fire, and there are twenty thousand troops. And we asked him, you know, what. What will happen there? He said, well, I'll just tell you, those soldiers aren't going back across that river. So I think they're, they're optimistic. I think their technique will be different than around Kharkiv. Um, so there was that and a number of other things. About Zelensky, what I would say is, uh, you know, you feel clearly feel in the presence of a remarkable personality. He was uh, cheerful. He was somewhat humorous. Uh, he was very clear about what he felt they needed. Uh, he listened well because we were asked to each give a piece of advice. Um, he, you know, he's an engaging guy. He looked, I have to say, he also he looked rested and relaxed, and he looked very fit. And so what that means is he's taking good care of himself, which I think is a tremendously important thing for a wartime leader to, to do. So that part I left reassured by. So his hands weren't shaking and he wasn't grabbing the edge of the table to steady his hands? I, I do. No, I think that's, that would be the other guy. We'll get to that. So I, you know, I came back reassured by that, but, but really concerned about the importance of continuing to pour in military aid at scale uh, as fast as possible. You know, there's an opening here. I don't know what you think about Putin's announcement that they're going to mobilize 300,000 reservists. I think they're going to have trouble generating much military capacity. But still, you know, it, and I, I'm trying to make this argument in the Atlantic piece. You want the Ukrainians to win fast because winning slow means a lot more cities smashed, a lot more young men and women without limbs or, you know, with hideous burns or in graves. And it means more suffering for civilians. You know, the I have this dreadful feeling when they finally liberate Kherson, they'll find mass graves very much like those of, of Bucha and, and Izium. Right, of course. And I agree with that, and I worry about that, too. I, I, I want to get to Putin's speech, which I, I read intently, including in the Russian original. But before we do that, I, and related to what you were just saying, I mean, I think one of the reasons it's important to try and help them win as quickly as possible uh, is the damage... Uh, that's being done to the Ukrainian economy. And I, I worry a lot about that. I mean, we've got, you know, a limited amount of uh, economic aid out of that $40 billion package that's helping, I think, a billion plus a month where 
giving essentially indirect budget support to the Ukrainian government, but that still leaves a big shortfall. They're printing money, which means they're going to have, you know, even bigger inflation than we've got uh, in the U.S. and globally. Um, the, they're, they're very sensitive to that, by the way. I mean, they, they, I think one of the, the, there are two reasons why they want much better air defenses, particularly against UAVs, unmanned aerial vehicles, and, um, you know, cruise and ballistic missiles. And part of it is to give them freedom to maneuver on the ground. So it's you know, for military purposes, but they want civilians to come back. They want the cities to be functioning. They want to prevent the Russians from doing what they're doing by smashing dams and flooding cities. And they know that they need to rebuild the economy. I thought the one piece of good news that I saw is that, if I'm not mistaken, the Department of Justice has approached Congress about being willing to take some of that $300 million in Russian reserves held in the United States and turn it into aid to Ukraine, which strikes me as an eminently right. sensible right. use of that money. Yeah, no, I think we're, that's that's going to be imperative. We're going to have to do that, I think. But I was just curious, uh, you know, I'm, I'm glad you say that, that they were very sensitive to, you know, using the military equipment to try and protect as much as they can of the civilian infrastructure and economy. But I just wanted to get a sense of how you felt people were holding up the, you know, how is the economy functioning, you know, on a day-to-day basis? Did you get any sense of that while you were in? No, I mean, we, we you know, Kiev has seemed to be functioning, but we, you know, we only saw some parts of it and we were in a, a security bubble. So I can't, I, I, I could not fairly say that I really have a sense of economic activity other than that, you know, you just do get the sense that the Ukrainians are incredibly creative, that this is really a democratic society with a lot of people who are entrepreneurial. I think, you know, one thing that we talked a bit about on the train on the way back, you know, so Ukraine had its problems with corruption, also had its problems with oligarchs. But, you know, you're going to have a whole bunch of veterans come back from this war. And I think what frequently happens in war is in democratic societies, the the veterans come back and they say, let's remember what kind of society we were fighting for. Now, if you look at the civil rights movement in the United States, for example, um, you know, part of it's driven by African-American veterans coming back from World War II and saying, you know, this isn't what I, and coming back to Jim Crow and things like that, and saying that is not what I fought for uh, and demanding rightly um, something else. And I think you may see something else, something somewhat similar here too. So let's talk a little bit. We will get to Putin and the Russians and mobilization and nuclear threats and all the rest of that. But you, you talked just now and in the Atlantic piece about getting them as much equipment as possible. What are the priorities? And particularly, both you and I have expressed on occasion the view that we should give them attackums. Let me play devil's advocate for a second um, and say, you know, if you or I were sitting in the Pentagon today, knowing that the United States has only produced about 35, 3,600 of these things to begin with, and about five, 600 of them have actually been fired by the U.S. before, leaving us about 3,000 and knowing that you might have a contingency with China in the Taiwan Strait, you know, maybe sooner than you think. I mean, we had Hal Brands on here not long ago, basically suggesting this is, could be not a you know 2030 or 2035 problem, but a 2027 
2025 problem even, you know, so does prudence maybe suggest, you know, you want to husband some of those resources yourself? And then the other question that goes with that is, you talked a little bit about there not being enough of a kind of wartime sense of urgency uh, in the Atlantic peace. And I agree with that, of course. But there are some obstacles in terms of getting the signal to defense industry uh, that they should, you know, make massive investments in expanding plant capacity. And oh, by the way, all of them are extremely worried that they lack the trained workforce uh, to produce all these munitions. So let me just throw all those, you know, sort of complicating factors into it. So um, what I would say to my friend under Secretary Edelman is I understand all of your fears and anxieties and uh, timidity, but I'm I'm not going to let you get away with it. <laughs> That's the first time anyone accused me of that. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, you and I had an unusual relationship. Um, so I, I would say a number of things. First thing I would say is th- their top priority is clearly anti-missile defense, uh, anti-UAV defense for the reasons we discussed, but long-range strike is part of it. So here's a number of things. Let me first tackle the industrial mobilization thing. In the Atlantic piece, and right here, I'll be extremely critical of the Biden administration. Um, Yes, there are all these constraints. I understand. But, you know, it is amazing what the United States can do when you push aside the bureaucratic obstacles and you remove some of the things that constrain you from building things and you throw money at it and you say, we're going to get really smart people to do creative things. And, you know, the, the model for all this, of course, is the World War II mobilization when, let us remember, we had the same shortages of highly sophisticated people. And guess what? You know, you had, uh, whether it was the automotive industry or the shipbuilding industry, uh, you know, they were they were churning out vast quantities of material with an with a workforce that was either uns, totally unskilled or only semi-skilled that they had trained up but but what you needed to do was to make it easy to do that and the problem is we're still operating on a peacetime kind of tempo and there are things you can do i mean if you want people to invest in plants you say okay we're going to pay for that or there's a number of things of that kind second thing i would say is yeah do you need to hold some of these in reserve for in case of conflict with China? Of course. Uh, but, the, you know, the key, your, your old boss, Don Rumsfeld, said, uh, what, what was the phrase? Low density, high demand. Right. Uh, he said that right. just means we didn't buy enough, right? Right. So then, right. then that, let's remember that that's the problem. We didn't buy enough, not that uh, we, shouldn't, um, uh, we shouldn't use it. But I, I would say strategically... A, a smashing Ukrainian victory over Russia and the eviction of the Russians from all of Ukrainian territory has tremendous strategic utility vis-a-vis China. Yeah. And yeah. you know this is why I think it's so important for us to be able to think tactically and strategically at, at the same uh, time. I think the message it sends to China about American will – about the resilience of democratic societies um, is tremendously worth it, and it diminishes the value of their Russian ally, which is sort of dwindling into semi-vassalage. Or how about their how about their Russian-based military equipment? Since almost everything in their inventory is either purchased from Russia or 
copied from Russian models. So I think for that reason, it's actually a good use of it. The final thing I would say is a, a Takums packs a hell of a punch. And if you have a Takums, you can do things like put the Kerch Bridge to Crimea, which is really their only, supply, their only serious supply route into Crimea from Russia, other than rail lines, which can be easily cut, puts that at risk. And we can, you know, I think that one of the other points to make is the Ukrainians have been very good. When they said they won't use things to hit inside Russia, they, you know, they haven't used HIMARS, for example. No, but, they're using Russian stuff to go after stuff in right. Russia. Stuff in Russia. Um, but, it, it, you know, with ATACMs, then all of the Russian rear areas in Ukraine are now at risk from things which are exquisitely precise and extraordinarily destructive. You know, we, we still don't know the, the, I mean, I think there's one of the interesting mysteries, which will be sure cleared up in time, is if you remember there were those really big craters in the ground uh, in, um, in the Crimea, which wiped out about half of the uh, Russian naval aviation in Crimea. And people were saying, well, that was done by special forces. Must have been really big guys to carry in, you know, hundreds of kilograms of high explosive and place them exquisitely precisely. So I right. and I don't know what system was used and right. all that, right. but but that's the kind of destruction that you can inflict with ATACMs, and we should. So does that does that um, I hope reduce some of your, you know, the, the diminish yes, the, the hand wringing and uh, <laughs> right. No, no. The point I, you were getting to the point that I wanted to drive to, which is. You know, the Gimler's rounds that they're using have multiple kind of warheads, but the Attackums are a unitary warhead just with very high explosive behind it. So the numbers you have to give them, to your point, you don't have to give them a lot. I mean, you could even agree a priori on a, a target list and say, here's what, you know, we agree you can use these for. Uh, and it could be things like the Kerch Bridge, except I don't think the administration will give it to them for the Kerch Bridge because the administration has decided that, you know, Crimea, the Russians regard as Russia. Therefore, if you attack Russia, you're you know, going, you're, you're inviting World War III. Now, that's despite the fact that the formal policy of the United States of America remains that we do not recognize uh, the Russian annexation of Crimea. We still regard it as part of Ukraine. And this this is now implicated in what Putin just announced, because if Putin has these sham referenda in parts of Lugansk and, and Donbass and uh, Donetsk and the Donbass and um, says, well, this is Russia now. So any any American systems used to attack this is attacking Russia. And then I'm going to respond with a nuclear attack. You know, but we're you know, we're out of business. Yeah, well, so yeah, I think you, you, know, can't you, let that stand, so. yeah, you, you and I have, uh, I think been expressed our frustrations about this repeatedly that you know we 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 foolishly say things that of course the russians play back at us one of the things i say in the atlantic piece you know if if we said look at all costs we have to prevent the russians from painting their tanks neon yellow you can be sure that next day there'd be a parade of 100 tanks in uh, Red Square with 100 barrels of neon yellow paint and somebody saying, you push us one step further and we're going to begin painting all these tanks neon yellow. It's, it's extremely foolish and um, self-destructive. But since you mentioned Putin, uh, shouldn't we shift to that? And since you're yeah. the Russian speaker and you're the guy who served in Moscow, I would be really curious what, 
What do you take away from that? I just read it in English translation rather hastily. You've sounds like you've read it a lot more carefully. What do, what do you take away from that, Eric? So look, it's uh, it's a speech which both obscures and reveals, right? So I think it reveals how dire the situation is uh, from his point of view, um, how panicked uh, the Russians are. You know, Ann Applebaum has a piece in the Atlantic that just posted before we came on about how the, you know, the Kremlin is in disarray, obviously, because he scheduled the speech for last night, you know, it was all set to go and then suddenly didn't happen. And then uh, suddenly it appeared this morning at nine o'clock in the morning, which is not the normal time that you have a, you know, broadcast speech um, to the nation and it was taped. So something was going on, you know, last night, we don't know exactly kind of, you know, what, what is behind that. You know, in some senses, senses the speech is, you know, so detached from the reality of what's happened, you know, that it's in a way almost troubling because it projects almost everything that he is actually doing and accuses Ukraine and the West of being the authors of that. So it's attacking civilian infrastructure, committing human rights abuses, you know, all, all of the stuff that he's actually doing, trying to extirpate, you know, national sovereignty. I mean, it's, it's literally, you know, projection of everything that he's doing in Ukraine uh, onto, you know, his, his adversaries. That's the kind of first thing that struck me. The second thing is on the, um, on the nuclear threats, right? He talks about, first of all, he says things that are just manifestly untrue. I mean, the mendacity of the speech is, is really striking. For instance, that Western officials, U.S. and NATO officials are constantly talking about using nuclear weapons against, you know, Russia. You know, it's the only one they're constantly talking about using nuclear weapons is is Putin and his some of his colleagues on Russian state TV. I mean, you know, this is not a, a discourse that's going on in the West at all. So but uh, do you think he believes that, Eric? Or I mean, that. I think that's for domestic consumption. I don't believe that he believes that. I think it's for domestic consumption. But when he says, when he issues the nuclear threat and says, this is not a bluff, by the way, there is a Russian word for it, bluff. To me, that's a tell. When you say, you know, I'm going to do X and I'm not bluffing, it it suggests that really you are. Um, Because if you weren't, you wouldn't have to say it. So I, I do think that, that there is an element, you know, precisely of what you say in the Atlantic piece, which is they know this is a neuralgic point. And I, I thought it was best expressed today by, I think it was Matt Harris of, of uh, the Ru- uh, Royal United Services Institute in an article in the Wall Street Journal in which he said, look, Putin absolutely understands that the use of nuclear weapons is a catastrophic cataclysm for Russia and for him personally. That being said, you know, we need to take all nuclear threats seriously, but we can't be paralyzed every time somebody, you know, says, oh, we might use nuclear weapons. For what? To do what? I mean, I was asked by Senator uh, Angus King yesterday and the Senate Armed Services Committee this very question, what might Putin do? And my answer was, look, we don't know because it's all in Putin's mind. You know, how would they use a nuclear weapon? He said, if you read Russian doctrine on nuclear weapons use, there's a lot of talk about using it across a, you know, a kind of spectrum of, of uses. 
including demonstration shots. So would they, you know, do a demonstration shot over the Black Sea or something, you know, a high altitude airburst? That's, I think, a possibility. You know, it would scare the crap out of everybody in Europe and the United States. It would, you know, fry electronics all through southern Ukraine and Turkey and the, around the Black Sea Basin, including in Russia. But, you know, never mind. Could they use a really low yield uh, weapon? you know, on a railroad junction, a key railroad junction in, in Ukraine? Yes, I think they could. I mean, do they need to? No, because they can probably use a conventional munition against it. But I mean, that would be a target that you could imagine them using. Although I did counsel people um, in the hearing that, you know, this whole notion of tactical and strategic nuclear weapons, even very low yield weapons, I think is literally nonsense. And it's really an artifact of arms control, what we could count, you know, from national technical means of, uh, of surveillance, uh, as opposed to, you know, uh, anything that means anything. You know, I, I described a, you know, the distinction between tactical and strategic nuclear weapons is the, you know, distance of uh, the square root, the square root of your distance from the weapon. So if you're if you're very far away, it's tactical. But if it happens to fall on you, it's very strategic. Yeah, I think that's that's a good point. Just to tie this off, I mean, I, we can't be paralyzed by this. We have to take it seriously. And just the final thing I would say is, it drives me crazy when former officials or current U.S. government officials hiding behind a cloak of anonymity in the press say, well. We don't have to respond with a nuclear weapon if they do that. We could use conventional means to do that. I have to say, President Biden, I think, has it right. The message needs to be, don't do it because you will change the character of warfare, as the president said to Scott Pelley on 60 Minutes on Sunday night, and rely on what Tom, late Thomas Schelling in Strategy of Conflict called the risk that leaves something to chance, letting them know that if they do this, it's going to lead everybody down a road that nobody knows what the end of, and it could end really badly for, for them. You don't have, does that mean that I recommend that the president actually have a nuclear response if they do it? Not necessarily, but, but we shouldn't talk about not doing it because that frankly makes it more likely that he'll do it. So, you know, I, I think, Maybe a topic for another uh, session is why do all these really smart people with degrees from Harvard and Yale Law School make such, make, make such you know really rudimentary mistakes when you're talking about dealing with uh, this kind of regime where it it should be clear to a, an eleven year old that you. You don't tell them what what you're afraid of. You don't. I mean, this is you're dealing. It's almost like dealing with a playground bully. You don't tell them. You don't tell the playground bully what you're really afraid of him doing to you. Um, I mean, it's just it's very strange. I think if I could shift a little bit in the announcement, I was um, the substance of it. So they're gonna. They say they're gonna mobilize three hundred thousand reservists. Now, uh, of course, first thing is important for our listeners to know that they don't have a reserve system the way the United States or Finland or Israel does. And these are not people who have been in any kind of training or any kind of organized units. It's not a ready, not a ready reserve. reserve. Yeah, it's it's people who have gone through military service of some kind. Um, and 
that's that's different. They probably don't. They may not have the the equipment for them. Uh, they almost certainly don't have the trained officers. They're going to farm this out to the regional governors, so you can be quite sure there'll be people buying um, buying their way out of this. The all the planes out of Russia are booked. Um, with like people trying to get off son. Did you did you see? That? Oh, I saw that. That where they pranked him. They called him, said we're wanting to report to the commissariat. So, ah, I've got to fix this at a different level. Yeah, right. But, right. but I, here's the thing that I found interesting about this. I mean, the most obvious thing to do would be not to try to begin scarfing up people who've been who are, you know, combat veterans were combat veterans twenty years ago, but to send conscripts, probably in some ways better trained, younger. And he's clearly not willing to do that. I mean, in, he, in fact, he explicitly says in the speech that they're not going to send conscripts. And I, th- I find that fascinating because it, it seems to me to indicate that they still, he still is afraid of the popular reaction. There were demonstrations in St. Petersburg and uh, Moscow and Novosibirsk and other big cities. Yeah, yeah. A lot of places. Uh, more, uh, than more than I expected. Uh, more than I expected. So on the one hand, he's afraid of the popular reaction, and it's clear that you know, people may not have cared about this thing, but they don't want their kid going yeah. uh, to go fight in this stupid war and get killed by the Ukrainians. You know, so on the one hand, there's that. On the other hand, there's that body of opinion that's represented by you know some of the people in the military uh, blogging channels that you see on Telegram, or the above all the kind of the the. The people who appear on the Russian sort of talk news shows, they're really a quite extraordinary collection of vampires and ghouls. Uh, (laughs) And I don't mean that in a complimentary sense. Um, (laughs) You know, who... Is there a complimentary sense of calling someone a vampire and ghoul? I don't know. (laughs) That's a point to discuss later on, I suppose. But, 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 you know, I mean, I'm sure they represent a real body of opinion. And some of it is... And to be serious, um, it's very chilling. You can follow some of this on Twitter. There's a wonderful reporter, Julia Davis, who's uh, at the Daily Beast, who translates, you know, these characters. Uh, and you see the clips. They are preaching genocide. I mean, that's the only word you can, uh, you can properly use. And I have to think that they represent something in the system. Yeah. You know, you know I don't think this is just them shooting their mouths off. So it does seem to me that there's a chance that Putin's getting squeezed. And then the final source of pressure that he's, he must be feeling is, you know, Chinese are not really backing him up. Uh, Modi kind of rebukes him publicly. Erdogan says Crimea, that's, entirely, that's entirely Ukrainian. Yeah. I, I mean, not to mention the Azeris are using, you know, the weakness of, you know, Russian troops being pulled out of Armenia to restart the war in the Caucasus. The, the Russian, uh, quote, peacekeepers who were pulled out of Kyrgyzstan and Tajikistan, the Kyrgyz and the Tajiks are going at it. Uh, the Kazakhs are, you know, hold. I mean, he's got a massive set of problems. Let me try a theory out uh, about the mobilization on you. I have got my own views about this. So first of all, they lack the infrastructure to actually have a full national mobilization because they used to have that in the Soviet era, because as you well remember, Soviet uh, divisions in those days were heavily under strength and would be, you know, uh, have a national mobilization in time of crisis or war 
where people would fall in and then be, you know, they would fall in on sets of equipment that existed for, you know, divisions that were essentially shells, right? They've dismantled all that in the 1990s. It was too expensive to maintain that. Um, so they couldn't even have a national mobilization. You're, of course, right. He's very afraid of the societal blowback. Uh, Shoigu, for instance, went, went on television immediately afterwards and clarified that, well, if you're a student studying, we're not going to pull you out of your studies. You know, we're only we're only looking for people who have like specific kinds of military experience from previous service. And we're going to make them, you know, go forward. Look, you and I have been talking for months on this podcast about the prospect that the Russian military might just collapse, that the army might just collapse uh, in Ukraine. I think what this limited mobilization is all about is trying to fill the gaps in the units that they have to keep them from crumbling between now and the winter, because otherwise you might have a catastrophic collapse and failure. And I think that's what this is all about. It's a gap filling measure. And as you say, it's not going to yield them any real, because of the inability to train or provide equipment in any real real time, and because they're all going to be demoralized. None of these people want to go. I mean, the biggest Google search, you know, in Russia yesterday was how do I get out of Russia? And all the, you know, one-way flights out of Russia were booked out. They're now giving instructions to the airlines. Don't book a ticket for anybody military age between 18 and 65. If they're so I, to- I heard that one of the other um, popular search terms was how do I break my arm at home? <laughs> Uh, but, yeah, there you know, there's, you go. there's a long tradition of that. I mean, you know, people used to shoot their big toe off, right? Right. No, no, I, drafted I, the, into the Russian army. Uh, you know, I think it's right. I guess uh, just to amend it a little bit, I think part of this is because they tried to take over a country bigger than France with right, an initial right. invasion force of less than two hundred thousand, right, which right. is way way too small. Um, I think they also, you know, they still have a it's a manpower heavy theory of war. They just haven't resourced it. So one of the things Ukrainians said to us is the way they do reconnaissance is what we would call a movement to contact. You know, you just right, send right. a whole bunch of infantrymen and you see, you know, in which direction the fewest of them get killed and you try there. And then when you're stopped, you try somewhere else. But it's not, there isn't a whole lot of military. It, it, it's uh, not reconnaissance by fire. It's reconnaissance by cannon fodder. Yeah. Now, um, I the, look, I think the other thing is as those people come in, you're right, they'll be demoralized and they will quickly be infected with fear by the people who are already there. I mean, that those kinds of dynamics, which you usually see at the end of a long war, can be quite powerful. Uh, I believe in 1918, fresh troops going to the front on the German side, on the Western Front, uh, faced cra- crowds of soldiers who were already there calling them scabs and strike breakers, you know, which can't have been particularly encouraging for them. I think, that, though, I push it even further. They may think that this thing will stop during the winter. I'm not convinced that the Ukrainians will let them do that. And um, I also think that given what we know about corruption and its effect on the Russian supply system, I think your chances of having a reasonably warm... Uh, parka uh, and, uh, you know, mittens and stuff like that are probably higher on the Ukrainian side than on the Russian side. You know, so I think you're going to have a lot of quite miserable people and they'll be having trench foot and stuff like that. 
And I, I also finally think that the Ukrainians will continue to be adroit in how they chew these people up. I mean, they, our friend Mick Ryan, a retired Australian two-star, uh, who ran their Australian Defense College, calls it a strategy of corrosion. Yep. yep. Uh, and I think that's a very good way of describing it. So you're right. It feels kind of desperate. Uh, it feels inadequate. And the result is a crisis. I mean, we don't have a whole lot of time left. So let me ask you a question. Um, so it's the old tell me how this ends. I mean, there is Putin under enormous, <laughs> under, under enormous pressure in the way that yeah. we've described internally from different dimensions, externally, um, war going very badly, not likely to go well, a West that's much more united than he ever could have suspected by the winter, you know, you know, on current trends, it'll look like the, part of his theory of victory was that the Europeans would cave and they're not caving. What happens to him? And, you know, where do we go from there? Uh, you know, I don't have a crystal ball and can't, can't really tell you uh, how it ends. I mean, I think it's going to be very difficult. He says now, I mean, it is interesting. He says he, you know, he uh, is willing to negotiate. This is what he's been saying now to you know, to Xi and, and Modi and others. We're willing to negotiate. It's the Ukrainians who, you know, who won't, uh, no, won't negotiate, which is, I mean, it, it's, uh, it's another lie, essentially. I mean, there's a glimmer, I mean, there's a, a, a small grain of truth in it in the sense that right now, Ukrainians don't see a whole lot of incentive to negotiate. But we know from a recent AP report that Dmitry Kozak, who was one of Putin's um, cronies and Ukrainian born, negotiated a deal with the Ukrainians before February 24th, in which the Ukrainians promised that they wouldn't apply for NATO membership. And Putin blew it off. He didn't, he wasn't interested, which tells you, by the way, how much this is about NATO membership. This is this is about elimination of Ukraine, uh, and as you were saying, the genocidal eliminationist rhetoric that you see on Russia Today and and uh, and Channel One are you know are symptomatic of what's behind all this. That's what's really behind all this. Look, I think he could be replaced at some point. Um, you know, he there was a lot of discussion. Um, on Russian TV last week after the Ukrainian breakthroughs in Lugansk, um, you know, for heads on Putin's desk, you know, someone has to pay for this. If only the czar knew, you know, of course, this was the czar's doing. But, um, you know, if if uh, Shoigu or Gerasimov or some others are being going to be made uh, scapegoats for this, they may decide they may not want to peacefully go off and be scapegoats. Um my fear is if he's replaced, it'll be replaced by somebody who's even you know worse or no better, uh, but probably someone who may not be able to keep all the balls in the air of this you know kind of corrupt kleptocratic system. Putin's real genius is not as a strategist; it's as someone who can make this corrupt system work and keep going. That's his real genius. The other possibility that we've discussed repeatedly uh, on Shielded Republic is that the Russian military just crumbles and goes away. Um, you know, Putin may try and have, you know, these rump referenda and then say that's Russia and basta, let's negotiate now. I mean, that's a possibility. You might get enough pressure from the Europeans and others, maybe even some inside this administration who would like to see this end. Um, who who might put you know uh, push the Ukrainians to do that? I mean, you argue very strongly 
against that in your Atlantic piece. And I agree with you, it would be foolish, you know, to, to do this, but I, I could imagine it happening over time, particularly if we get into the winter and, you know, gas prices are going up and, you know, there's a lot more uh, inflation, et cetera. So uh, it could be any one of those. I, I, I just don't know which way it'll go. You know, my last thought is there could just be chaos for a while where you have different governments coming and going and a lot of forces tearing at it. I do think, though, the thing we won't be able to get away from is uh, we're going to be have to be kind of on our guard against a revanchist Russia for decades to come. And that really is going to require some very serious uh, strategic rethinking on our part, which maybe should be the subject of another podcast down the road, particularly once we have the new national defense strategy to dissect. Happy to dig into that with you. I would leave leave everybody with one final thought. There was one thing that was very striking in the speech by Putin. He says their objective is not just to con, you know contain and defeat Russia and limit its sovereignty. It's to break Russia up into continue into, you know, a bunch of different smaller states that will be, you know, at war with one another forever, you know, because of their different ethnic, you know, linguistic, you know, composition. I mean, what hundreds of nationalities and languages in Russia, you know, it's not a natural nation state. I don't rule out that if, you know, you get, uh, this kind of chaotic uh, situation at the top that you were discussing in Russia, that the whole thing does, you know, fall apart and break up. And and it's happened before in Russian history a couple of times. It certainly has. Well, on that cheery note, we started on a high happy note, but inevitably we get back to, a, you know, to uh, something even less cheery and, uh, that will call it a day for Shield of the Republic today. But Elliot, thank you for sharing uh, your firsthand impressions just back from, if not the front, uh, at at least, uh, if not the line of contact, uh, at least the, um, you know, the theater. The theater. So we're, so we're well, glad to. Well, well, thank you. And I'll, I'll just say we, we default to our usual dark view of human nature and uh, the prospects for international affairs. And I'm sure it's what our listeners expect of us. We'll see you. See you next time.